instead of saying, well, you know, you like put on a headset and you shoot some stuff. It's pretty cool. Okay, well, that's kind of a boring. You sold me. Yeah. I'm Russ. And I'm Danny. And this is the Memory Makers Podcast. The show focused on helping you create amazing customer experiences and make more memories. Memory Makers Podcast. <laughs> Going with Creed. Yeah. Wow. Well, Kurt Cousins has been using it as his pregame jam and they've been getting down with it. So I figured it was quasi topical. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was not expecting that. And it actually worked out like the syllables and the rhythm worked perfectly. Hey, better to be lucky than good sometimes. How long have you been holding that one in your back pocket? About six seconds ago. (laughs) So it was very spontaneous. Yes. I love it. (laughs) How are you doing, brother? I'm good. I'm here in the studio. Hey-o. And why why are we here together? Well, you know, we've been uh, circling the troops up. It's just that time of year where we're trying to do future planning and uh, the IAPA season and all of that stuff. And, And we've just had such good success by bringing in multiple departments and the teams from out of the office into one space and making sure that we're looking at, hey, what's working? What's not? What do we need to be better at? What are some things that we want to be really dialed in on? How do we sharpen some of the tools? And so it's been a great couple of days having you in and having Scott in and others. And so I'm just been jazzed to get to see your shining face, friend. Shining face. Does that mean I'm too sweaty? Is that what you mean? No, I mean, Mike needs to be better about getting you some bass and some foundation. You know, that's not that's not on you. So. It's not on you. It sounds like it's on me. But <laughs> kind of, I don't know. Yeah. I'm going to insult you, but it's somebody else's fault. I didn't mean shiny in the physical sense. I meant like your aura. Ooh, the metaphorical sense. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and once again, we are off the rails. Quick and fast. That's how we do it. And then we rein it right back in. So uh, today, what I was hoping we could talk about was uh, making sense of virtual reality. You know, it's one that we have a heavy stake in. We both work with the AAMA. Um, with things like the standardization committee and the board and stuff like that. But we also do it on the C-Dub side with a lot of product development and really helping folks because, you know, we it's easy for us to be super excited about it and live in it from one filter set. But especially over the last, gosh, five years that we've been living in this world of VR, also being very cognizant of the fact that there are good decisions and bad decisions depending on your context, your size, your operations. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all piece when it comes to VR. It's easy to fall in love with the technology, but if, as we've said, don't do it for the sake of the technology. Like It's a way to you know get a better and more high-fidelity experience that folks can enjoy. And so what I thought we would do is uh, give a little bit of context of what we're seeing in the landscape these days. What are some good decision filters for you to be able to use as an operator so that way you can make a correct selection and you're not either outpunning your coverage or biting off more than you can chew, and you're going to have something that's actually going to translate for your guests. And so that's the goal and the intent, and I think we've got some good things to dive into here. One thing I'd like to add to that, you just mentioned the right selection. And Mm. what we mean by that is not saying this product is the right selection. It's understanding your operations, your goals, your abilities, and finding the right fit for you, which could be one, it could be multiples, and it might be none, right? It's just trying to find the path that makes sense for you. We want to give you the tools to make the most sense of that. 100%. And so, uh, you know, we're always 
big fans of, hey, contextual uh, background info that helps kind of understand where we got uh, to the to the landscape today. And um, so why don't we start with that, Danny? Hit us up with a little bit of, you know, what has been going on with VR in location-based venues uh, so that way we can have a better understanding of why the choices are what they are today. So let's rewind the clocks a little bit to the first VR surge that happened in the 90s, mm-hmm. and it was... It was like a bottle rocket. It got really like exciting, and then it just died out immediately. And there was a couple things that caused that. And number one is that the cost was very prohibitive for operators because the amount of money it would take to be able to put one of those attractions into your space was very high. Compound that with the fact that the throughput and capacity of those were extremely low. Mm -hmm. And then compound that one more time by the fact that the technology was very limited at the time. Yeah. So that created a a bad recipe. Yeah. (laughs) If we're being honest, if we think about the variables of an attraction. There there were issues that stemmed from that, I guess you could say. (laughs) But it's so it died out and it made a resurgence back in 2018 ish, Mm -hmm. right? And when that really started exploding again um, in location based entertainment. And for the first couple of years, we had that question of like, well, is this going to be doomed to repeat the same pattern as we did in the 90s? Mm -hmm. And um, we were very bullish on VR and we still are. And that has turned out to be the the right bet. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, Number one is that the the level of technology and immersion and what can be done is significantly better. It's smaller. It's more compact. It's more easy to manage for guests. It's at a much lower price point. The experience is better. There are more game options just across the board. There's a lot of things that improve the viability of VR within a location-based entertainment venue. And Part of the reason, and if you've been paying attention to some of the things that we do from an educational standpoint, you've been watching this podcast, we talk about VR a fair bit. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason we do this is because we feel that it is going to be a big portion for the foreseeable future of an entertainment mix. And we like to educate people because very often VR can be lumped into this one category that's a monolith of VR either works or it doesn't. Or I had a one bad experience with that thing that I tried, so all VR sucks. And I want to help give operators the tools to realize there's a lot of nuance. There's different categories, which we'll talk about in a minute. And even within those categories, there's tons of different product options. And it is not one monolith of VR or not VR. There's a lot of nuance and we want to help people have the tools to understand the right path forward for them. Absolutely. Well, side note, I need to use the word monolith more. So I love that. That's thank you for that little gift. You're welcome. <laughs> so let's see how many times you can drop that in the episode today. Oh man. Okay. Yeah, well, I shouldn't have done that. No, that was a no, bad no, mistake. No, no, no. We're not going to rewind. That. Yeah. Erase. Undo. Undo button. Um, so when we look at any attraction, right, we start big and then we start dialing in. So the first thing that I wanted to make sure that we looked at was the VR customer alignment. And sometimes whether it's a it's go-karts or it's a dark ride or it's laser tag or it's whatever attraction that you're looking at, who are you trying to attract with this piece? Are you trying to go after more birthday party you know, action? Are you trying to go after something for a specific age or demographic? Is this something where, you know, 
where are we actually looking to move the needle for? Are we trying to enhance a, a group that we're already serving well, but we know that this is really relevant for them? And so at first, it's easy to think, well, man, VR is for these people. And what we found is and, and that there is not a monolith of uh, customer type for where it's just one thing. We really see a nice split across age groups, men and women, and income ranges. And so... What by looking at some of these numbers and things that we see with those customer alignments, that then helps us start to be a little bit better at filtering out relevant VR options that will speak to them or you know move that needle a little bit better. And so when you look at things like kids versus adults when it comes to VR, we're seeing Gen Z, Millennials, and Gen X all have a healthy portion of the makeup of the, the age ranges that folks are playing. You've even got some folks that are younger and you've even got some folks that are older. It's not by any means that baby boomers or Gen Alpha are not participating in this, but the healthy portion of the bell curve is a nice uh, spread across those Gen Z millennials and Gen Xers. And then you look at men versus women playing VR, where you actually see a pretty even split of 55% men, 45% women that are doing um, VR experiences. And so there can be things that are relevant and exciting for um, anyone. And then income ranges as well. This doesn't have to be some huge price point piece that then you're going to be charging, you know, $30 for an experience on. There's a variety of different types and styles of VR attractions that are are good for what type of operations that you're setting up. But you even see uh, a, you know, low income makes up about 30% of the split. Middle income makes up about 31% and high income makes up about 39%, which makes sense a little bit when you look at it, the higher income areas having higher value attractions and things like that that it skews, but to still see that relatively evenly distributed uh, across the board, it, it is a an encouraging factor of, okay, my market is not going to inherently preclude me from being able to offer this, but I still need to be considerate of who my audience is that I'm going after, so that way I can capitalize on that and have something that's really going to speak to my core group that I'm trying to get with this. And so the next thing that I think that, you know, when we talk about these operational best practices is, okay, who am I trying to attract with this like we've been talking about? And what does that mean? How do we start to bucket out, you know, what's going to be a good thing for what I'm looking for? What's going to be a not so good thing that I'm looking for? And so, Danny, share with us a little bit of some of the the styles of VR that we're seeing, some of the experiences or the product, you know, all of those, those kind of three areas. So that way then we can you know, say, okay, if I'm going after this group and I want it to be, you know, this type of an experience, because I think it's going to translate to that group. Like what are some of those frameworks that we can use? Start by thinking about what type of VR you're best suited to operate. Mm. And that is based upon the space that you have, the amount of um, labor you have availability uh, available, the amount of effort that you want to put into operating it. And that's part of the equation that we have to understand. And so, you know, when we think about there are different types of VR, and we've talked about this, uh, the VR categories in a previous episode, and it's becoming more nuanced and the lines between them are blurring, but let's keep it super, super simple and mm-hmm. say you've got arcade, you've got a hybrid attraction, which is larger than an arcade, but requires staff, but not like a huge full-on attraction. And then you've got free roam, which is much more the full-on attraction. And you can look at each of those things and say, okay, what are we best suited to operate? If you know that based upon the staff that you have both in quantity as well as the quality of staff and what they're capable of doing, you know, I just don't think we're going to be able to 
uh, consistently hit on the execution of a full free room attraction and I'm a little bit worried about the technology and there's things that there that just don't feel like the right fit okay well maybe you start looking at the other end of the spectrum and you look at arcade because there's a lot of um, you know uh, either non-staffed or very low staff arcade pieces out there that you can put into your arcade mix very easy to operate they can do very well in your arcade and that's maybe where you start mm -hmm. and maybe sometime down the line you can look into growing into a different kind of VR mm -hmm. but be very self-aware in what your strengths are and what your strengths are not and don't try to put a square peg in a round hole and one more thing that that we've hit on many times before but I'll say it again if you're going to buy a VR attraction that requires staff, but you don't plan on staffing it, do not buy it because mm -hmm. it will not make money if you have a see us at the front counter to play or anything like that. It's going to hurt your overall revenue potential. Big time. I had a conversation with Jack and Chris from Stars and Strikes in the past, and you know, they had done some things like Hologate with us. And then we're moving away from that model because, the, you know, in conversations with them, they're like, we, we like the product. But what we're finding is from an operational standpoint, where our staffing levels are and, you know, insert a couple of other variables here. It was like for us, it makes sense to look at the arcade model because it's it's less taxing on the staffing side um, when, you know, we need to be able to have this just be a little bit less uh, a little bit more hands off from where we're at and what our needs are or our abilities are at the moment and it wasn't I mean clearly Jack and Chris and Stars and Strikes like all of their locations and their team members do a great job but it was them being self-sufficient of where we are right now we're just not best suited to be running this and so we want to get our hands around it we want to you know take a step back look at some things like Rabbids or Kongs or VR Agent or those unattended VR pieces in an arcade or quasi unattended you know they always take a little more TLC so that was a really good self-aware choice that then they were making because now they can enjoy the benefits of having some VR offerings, but they don't feel like they're overextended and have less friction that went along with it. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have someone like Andretti's Indoor Cardigan Games, and they are very bullish on VR. They have arcade, they have hybrid, they have free roam that they're adding, every different category, and they're leaning into that heavily because they understand they're suited to staff that well mm -hmm. and they know their goals and they know how they operate and so it makes sense for them right yeah. it's not going to be one answer that it's the right size right fit for everybody you have to kind of be understanding of your own operational best practices and the last piece i'll hit on here so we talked about what type of vr are you best suited to operate what are the different categories and then even within those categories Let's look at arcade as an example. Mm -hmm. Within arcade, you've got driver, shooter, explorer. You have these different kinds of VR experiences that live underneath that arcade umbrella mm -hmm. and finding out, okay, well, I know based upon the the kind of mix that we already have in our arcade and maybe the type of audience that comes in and the age demographic that we want to hit, there are different things that you can look mm -hmm. at within that realm. Well, and it would be something, uh, hey, if we know that, you know, I want to increase some things that are more, uh, friendly for um, women or young kids to play. I'm going to avoid some of the shooter games because that's just a little bit too much gore. You know, there's some folks where it's, you know, like a Frankie's Fun Park where it's like, hey, I just want to run zombies because that is what is printing money for us. And that's what our market is asking for versus someone else who's like, oh, no, I need a little bit more of an artistic, creative, exploratory type of an experience. Again, it's looking at what is the actual gameplay of the attraction, not even just the model style that it is. So that way we can find something that's actually going to ring the bell for the right people. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, and I think that when you then look at that, you know, one of the pieces of what are we set up to operate, another p- aspect of that is how are we charging for the, these VR pieces? You know, if we're doing arcade-focused VR, and that's going to be your typical a la carte kind of pricing and things, but if we start getting into things like the hybrid models or the, you know, the small or large attraction-style VR how are we what is what, how are we currently selling other attractions and what's the right way that we can do VR do we have to charge for it completely different from what we've done other things and is that going to preclude us from doing it and what we've found is that there are actually a variety of ways that you can use hybrid and, and large-scale attraction VR. We have clients that use all of these these three different models. And so you can sell those a la carte. So, hey, this is going to be, you know, we want to follow this dollar-per-minute revenue generation piece. So if it's a 15-minute experience, we want to be able to charge at least $15 for that. If it's a two-minute experience on an arcade piece, we want to be able to charge 2 to $3 for something like that. And so a la carte works great. Um, it's just a little bit harder from an operational perspective to have like scheduling and capacity and things like that that go with it. Um, you're going to have to staff it, you know, without uh, without knowing necessarily how busy that attraction is going to be. Um, and it just depends on do we have the flexibility with our staffing levels to be able to do that right now. Um, then you look at some things where we see uh, Brian and Connie Smith doing at Alley Cats where they're doing mini bundling. So they have our limitless VR and those games, you know, if you were selling that a la carte, it'd be, okay, set this game for five minutes and then you'll have a brief and a debrief on either end of it, typically eight, eight minutes in total. So we're going to charge eight to 10 bucks for that. Alley Cats looked at that and said, mm, okay, but I want to actually look at creating a little bit of a growing experience for folks. And so what they did, um, and as we were working with them was, hey, we're going to actually do a 20 minute session um, or a 15-minute session, depending on on what time of week it is, where we're going to have three mini games that are back to back to back. That that way the guests can play it the first time, get oriented around the space, play it a second time, be able to utilize some more of the features and functions um, at a higher level, and then play it a third time to then be able to really have that sophisticated piece. And so that way it's that easy to learn but hard to master kind of rule um, that is so ubiquitous in our world. And so they are looking at okay, great, I can still charge 20 bucks for this if I want to, um, to be able to justify this because now they're getting a longer experience overall, um, but they're also having a higher level of satisfaction. I don't have to worry about, you know, multiple games being upsold that made it, a, you know, a one-time ask is getting them higher than what you would be for your a la carte kind of stuff. And so it's an easier lift for their front counter folks as well as their operational staff because they're not debriefing and divesting in between as many sessions. So it just helps the train run on time a little smoother for them. And then we have folks like, um, you know, that, that do premium package packages, right? Like everything's just a, a different style of bundles. You can do package A, package B, package C, uh, and you get more things as you add. And for the folks that really do that more high volume, like mass throughput with those, this is something that's super attractive because you can still have it be a smaller game length, right? Like a two and a half minute or a three minute game. So it's a five minute experience overall, but we can add this and now we know, hey, by having this and bumper cars in our top tier package, um, we can see more of those upsells take place because there's more offered in that bundle in that package and we're getting enough people through to justify that, right? We're making it up in volume um, by having a an easy upsell opportunity. And so we've seen all three of these work really well with those different styles of VR. 
And it's, it's encouraging just from the fact of, I don't have to change what we're already doing from an operation and costing and pricing and bundling standpoint to be able to have this fit within our ecosystem. We can find a way to tailor the game lengths, stack the experiences up, or look at, hey, if we know that this is really going to be increasing our people's dwell time, their per cap spend, all of that, and it's going to be something that they come back a lot more frequently than maybe what other people do, um, then we can make that up over time, and it's a cool way to be able to, to leverage it. So it's really been a fun exercise to really see each of these different pricing models hold true for VR across the different types. And so you've got to this point where now you you know your attraction, you know what you're going to charge, and now you're at a point where it's time to train the staff. <laughs> and that's what we'll hit on in this last section is, is training. I think it's important when you add any attraction, any piece that you do, whether it's VR or not, to allow your staff to play it a bunch, to let them understand, fully comprehend the game and the nuances and why it's exciting. Because as part of your training, if it's fun and exciting and engaging and they get to play it, they become more knowledgeable about the product, they're excited about it, and an enthusiastic employee about any particular attraction is much more likely to be able to sell that to people. Or when they, when a customer asks questions about what that is, instead of saying, well, you know, you like put on a headset and you shoot some stuff, it's pretty cool. Okay, well, that's kind of a boring- You industry. sold me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like VR, you like walk around and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and that's, I think the biggest thing is then gamifying that training, right? Making it something where you're doing some tournaments and some um, kind of built in competition and team building with your own staff to get fluent with this piece. It's not that I have to read the manual and understand, okay, I know I'm going to go to page 37 of this and, and then follow this, you know, flow chart of stuff. No, it's, I want our team members to have a high literacy rate of what this experience is just like with laser tag or anything else and they get that by doing the reps of playing it and we can get them to have those reps by hey we're going to do an in-house competition or tournament where we're going to do 15 bucks to the winner or 50 bucks for the winner and 25 for second and 10 bucks for third like those are some fun gamified pieces that anybody who's going through updated training practices is just grabbing onto with both hands. And it's so impactful because they're exposed to things not only from the player side, but then the also the operating side. So if something does come up where you're like, oh, what's this mean? You know, what's this little message? Oh, I, I've seen this dozens of times now. All I have to do is, you know, restart that controller real quick and then boom, they're back in as opposed to oh no, stop, I haven't seen this before, I need to go find someone. It's that same pain point where if you're you know, you're know, at a restaurant and you're like, oh, excuse me, can I get a side of this? And they're like, oh, I'm going to have to go talk to a manager because it's not included kind of stuff. It's like, get rid of that noise and, and just get a little bit more comfortable by playing and doing the experience on both sides of operating it and playing it. And like we mentioned, like I mentioned before, the the internal team building and trash talking and fun that can kind of come with all of that stuff will also then help you realize, okay, if we are staffing this one directly, like here are my three all stars that are really good at the game, really passionate about what it is and because they enjoy it so much. And then they're going to be able to carnival bark and engage our customers at a higher level to create that cooler experience. Yeah, I, I like what you were saying about getting a lot of reps under their belt to be able to see that stuff because repetition is the motor of mastery. Yes, sir. And so you, having those repetitions, training is not a one-time event and then it's over and then you move on. It's continual, always, forever. Yeah. Especially because um, we have 
young staff that needs to be reinforced, and you may have staff turnover and new people joining your team. And so when we take a step back and kind of recap everything that we talked about today, first we hit on a little bit of the history of VR, how we got to where we are, understanding your audiences, the breakdown of that audience, understanding who it is that you want to attract and engage with one of these VR products, then how to use that and your own self-awareness for your operations to choose the right category and style of VR game, how to price it appropriately, and then also how to train. And so to me, that seems like a really good place to kind of wrap up today's episode. Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, this is just we got to keep feeding this beast so that way people can find the right path for them. So keep after it. It's not, it doesn't have to be the scary monster. A lot of these things are actually much more tackleable, if that's a word, um, to, to be able to do. So as always, we're going to continue to have new content coming out to you guys and really appreciate it. Any insights or things that you guys want to see us um, hone and focus in on um, and curate for you, we'll be happy to take that in and make sure that we're speaking your love language from that perspective. So um, stay tuned as we can continue to add more and more to you in the coming weeks if you like what you heard don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review if you would and those five stars are always appreciated please and thank you if you've got ideas for future episode topics or guests that you'd like to see follow us on social media and uh, send us a dm and as always big shout out to mikey mike on the ones and twos running the ultranet um really appreciate all the work that he does behind the scenes for us here and uh, we will catch you on the next one troublemakers Biodome. Yes. Making a filter. Making a filter. I like trains. Wait, are you doing sound effects over there? You could. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Are we recording? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Cool. All right. I'm Russ. And I'm Danny. And this is the memory.